Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, the panel here today is an August one, and uh, unfortunately, we, the dilemma of the moderator when we have such a distinguished panel is that you can't do justice to all of the speakers with an introduction. So you have everybody's extensive biography. Uh, I'm going to make a brief point that I think is salient for each one of our speakers. Our first speaker, former senator from Nebraska, former Secretary of Defense, the Honorable Chuck Hagel. Um, his biography is a long and impressive one. I wish to highlight two points that may not be there. The first is both he and his brother served in the same infantry squad in Vietnam. That is extremely unusual. I think it's safe to say that as secretary, if you heard of somebody doing that, you'd probably relieve their commander. I know, I know that I would as, as a commander. The second point that I want to point out to those who think that America's military efficiency is less than it should be. The division he served in in Vietnam in the worst year of the war, 1967-1968, was the 9th Infantry Division, which was organized under terms of combat as a riverine infantry division. There has never been a riverine infantry division in military history before or since. Uh, but with a conscript army in the middle of one of the nastiest wars the United States ever did, uh, it managed to organize this division which fought effectively, honorably, and uh, basically shows the spirits of improvisation that the United States has always displayed. And, are willing to share with our partners and allies around the world. So with that, let me please introduce to you the former Secretary of Defense, the Honorable Chuck Hagel. Uh, Colonel, thank you. Um, it uh, is a high honor to be introduced by a Colonel, <laughs> especially if you were just a Sergeant. <laughs> Colonel, thank you and thank you for your service. All here on the panel, thank you for your many, many years of leadership in this country and analysis and wise counsel to so many. Uh, and that counsel and advice continues to today, which this country is most grateful for. And I personally uh, have benefited from an awful lot of it. Uh, thank you also to the National Council John, your leadership, your team, uh, for what you continue to contribute and this uh, institution contributes to a better and clearer understanding of world affairs, in particular the Middle East. And I am uh, grateful again to be asked to be included in the program uh, today. Uh, before I address the subject of the conference, the Middle East, uh, I believe it'd be worthwhile to take note of the current global geopolitical landscape. And I know many of the speakers uh, today and tomorrow will be touching upon our world uh, as it is, and uh, maybe even venturing some thinking about where we're all going uh, as uh, all human beings. Uh, but uh, before I address some of the specific thoughts I have on the Middle East, uh, I, I wanted to frame this up in a larger context because I think uh, the Middle East uh, is bigger and more important and represents more than just the interests of the Middle East. 
As we all know, the great challenges that fa face today's Middle East cannot be disconnected from the realities of today's world order. No part of the world today can be seen or addressed in a vacuum. All seven billion global citizens live in a global community underpinned by a global economy. Leaders and nations are faced with historically complicated challenges. Today's world is the most combustible, complicated, interconnected that we've seen since World War II. Henry Kissinger captured this present period of discontinuity in his 2014 book, World Order, when he wrote, and I quote, our age is insistently, almost desperately, in pursuit of a concept of world order. Many of today's assumptions underpinning U.S. global leadership and policy are a work in progress. This is a period when the U.S. will need to continually adjust and adapt more than any time since World War II. In the United States and Europe, there is a rising tide of populism and nationalism growing distance between ruling elites and citizens, a lack of trust and confidence in our governing institutions and in our leaders, and a widening gap between the rich and everyone else. There's a demographic and generational shift in attitudes and ideas and a technological and social media revolution that is propelling this unprecedented rate of change in the world at a time of historic diffusion of economic power. No one nation can contain or control this. World leaders must manage it and give it direction and focus. As a new 21st century geopolitical center of gravity is forming. American purpose will need to stay true to its core values of democracy and human rights while managing both the uncertainties of historic change and the many crises that are associated with such turbulent periods. Our global interests in security and prosperity will be constant, but the international landscape is being altered daily. This era will require an unusual agility to seize opportunities and develop coalitions of common interests as they come such as in the war against terrorism. The U.S. and the free world must continue to rely on two of the foundational building blocks of a world order that has served the world well over the last 70 years. Strong alliances and trade, and they'll continue to do so. All imperfect, but workable and relevant to global peace and prosperity allowing for new opportunities, development, freedom, human rights, and progress for all people. Today, many parts of the Middle East are a cauldron of chaos, suffering, destruction, non-functioning governments, and despair. The wars in Iraq, Syria, Yemen, and Libya are not localized conflicts. They are regional and international crises. They are a shared tragedy. The human costs are dawning and heartbreaking as we watch the systematic destruction of these countries. Death tolls in the hundreds of thousands with many more injured, homeless, and in despair as the movement of millions of refugees has overtaken the capacities of countries 
in the region to deal with them. It has altered the politics of Europe and the European Union and placed more challenges on nations everywhere. Terrorists have expanded their reach in Europe, Africa, and Asia as a consequence of the Syria war. Perhaps we have become on some level numb to the carnage, or we try to block out awareness of the immensity of this disaster. The people and heritage of the Middle East are victims of and captive to historical, religious, ethnic, tribal, and post-colonial authoritarian forces now in play. Even when these wars end, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Libya, as well as Lebanon, risk becoming failed states or satellite proxies for other countries like Iran. The post-conflict requirements for even the most minimal stability in these countries will be vast. It will require an unprecedented degree of political security, economic, military, and humanitarian cooperation, or we will be back in the same place again. And this all occurs at a time of uncertainty regarding both the future of the global energy market and the historic and bold economic reforms undertaken by Saudi Arabia. Over the last 15 years, the U.S. learned from costly experience that before dictators are toppled, some basic questions need to be answered, like what comes next? Who governs? Legitimacy of next leaders. How are they selected? What about functioning responsible institutions of governance? How will the country be rebuilt? Before the Taliban, Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi were toppled, we should have had plans to address each question and more. We learned you cannot shock and awe countries into new and legitimate governments. In addition to the devastating humanitarian tragedy in the region, Syria is more than any other theater, a fault line for major power conflict. The Syrian battlefield now includes international and regional powers, either directly or via proxies. The U.S., Russia, Iran, and Turkey all have military assets in Syria. A U.S.-led coalition involving both Middle East countries and NATO powers has been conducting thousands of airstrikes, as are Russia and Syria. The Islamic State and Al-Qaeda, the two most formidable terrorist threats in the region, control ground in Syria, in Iraq, Libya, and Yemen. These are hardly the attributes of a local conflict. It is instead a global calamity. The effects of the Syrian war are continuing to ripple out around the world, and the increased potential for miscalculation and escalation makes it one of the most dangerous flashpoints in the world. Given the many nations and competing interests, the next U.S. president will inherit all of this, and it will require immediate attention. The present state of affairs in the Middle East reveals that we are collectively at a loss beyond attempting to put out fires, and we are not doing that very well. 
The need for a shared vision or in-game in the Middle East is vital for U.S. policy in the region and for the region itself. A consensus on security, governance, and development would over time push ISIS and other terrorist groups further to the margins and eventually out of business and provide the building blocks of a shared future for the next generation in this region. The defeat and expulsion of ISIS and Al-Qaeda's affiliates from Iraq and Syria is both urgent and essential. But there is a need for a broader vision for a stable and prosperous Middle East. The future of Assad and a new government in Syria and the difficult decisions and agreements that will need to be reached will come in time. But for now, we do not have the minimum stability, the minimum stability for either a ceasefire or to get all of the regional powers and local factions to stop fighting and start talking. Secretary Kerry has worked tirelessly to try and achieve this objective, but he's had few cards to play. We should not accept the preconceived notion that this, this region is forever destined for ethnic and religious conflict manipulated by the great powers through continued proxy wars. Our standard must not be anywhere near perfection. That is impossible. But rather, an absence of war, an opportunity for political parties and factions to sort out ways of working together, effectively and fairly governing, development, an alternative to violence, and a vision for a shared future and respect for all people in the region. This must come from the region itself. The U.S. cannot fix this problem. Outside powers cannot dictate this. We can help facilitate, support, guide, provide resources, and develop the leaders and people in the region. But the ultimate decision and the ultimate accountability is with the leaders and the people of the region. The building blocks of a Middle East with hope and potential will require reaching an agreement with Iran. This will not be easy, given Iran's record in the region. Many here in this room have worked hard to try and reshape that relationship. But Iran is part of the region. It is part of the geography. It will need to be included in any long-term agreement not totally unlike the recent six-party nuclear agreement talks. The U.S. relationship with Russia will need to be a high, high priority for the next president. It needs a reset that's real. It is too dangerous to allow this relationship to continue to drift toward open confrontation. The U.S.-Russia relationship crosses many boundaries of conflict and common interests the Middle East being one of the most important. There will be no possibility for Middle East stability without the Iranians, Russians, and the nations of the Middle East. Resolving decades of conflict will require courage and conviction, vision and strategic thinking, acceptance of risk, and recognition that the costs of continued conflict in the region are too high. They are too high for all of us. As we think it's successful, all at a different time, 
with different specific dynamics and challenges. We can learn from these initiatives. A couple that could be studied are the formation of the Gulf Cooperation Council 35 years ago and the 1989 TIFE Accord. The Gulf Cooperation Council has produced a strong economic and security record for its members. Imperfect. Alliances, agreements, models are all imperfect. But they work. The 1989 TIFE Accord in Lebanon, whose architect, Rafiq Hariri, one of the most visionary leaders of the post-World War II era in the Middle East, was a prototype for coexistence in Lebanon among many political and religious factions. Unfortunately, the Lebanese government today faces huge problems. Sectarian divisions, paralysis, and continued outside power interference but Lebanon has held together. Jamal Daniel, in a recent article in the National Interest, offered an original approach to rethinking the Levant, based on economic integration and shared values and heritage. 10 years ago, my former Senate colleague and friend, Joe Lieberman and I introduced legislation which offered an approach to the Middle East and Central Asia based on economic integration in cooperation. We brought together all of the regional ambassadors to the United States for a meeting at the U.S. Capitol to discuss how to approach regional development, integration, and partnership. We listened carefully to each representative as to what they wanted for their countries and their children's future, and what they were willing to do together to make that a reality. There are a number of think tanks finishing work on thoughtful sets of recommendations to the next president about policy ideas for the future of the Middle East. One of them that I'm familiar with is the Atlantic Council Rafiq Hariri Center for the Middle East. This effort is being led by former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright and former National Security Advisor Steve Hadley. Because America remains the world's leading power, a U.S. presidential election especially when the current president is not running for re-election, brings with it the prospect of hope and fresh thinking, energy, and new possibilities. The next U.S. president will have no clear roadmap or way forward for the Middle East, as all roads seem to have led to the current crises. With a new administration, we have the possibility and an opening for a new approach. Over the last few years, I've seen how our military was too often called upon to accomplish diplomatic development and governance objectives that militaries cannot accomplish. I could not be more proud of our men and women in uniform and how admirably they have served in taking on all of these tasks. But military power cannot take the place of diplomacy or policy. There was a military component to our policies in the Middle East, but it must be shaped and directed by a political vision and strategy. It seems to me that for many years, U.S. policies, interventions, and actions in the region have been reactions to crises, 
and that a broader, longer-term vision for the region has been lacking or rarely considered or even questioned. As we all know, new administrations are faced with immediate problems the day they take office, allowing little time for thoughtful analysis of the big issues and development of policy. They deal with the realities as they are, the realities of the inventory of immediate problems they inherit. Given the urgency of the crises in the Middle East and the need for fresh thinking, the next president should consider appointing an independent commission to reassess U.S. policy for the Middle East. The commission would take a broader view of the region and U.S. interests there, as well as the interests of all nations of the Middle East. Because the commission would function outside of government, it could take a step back and examine our common interests, our common interests with all nations of the Middle East and others, including Iran, and seek to discover the building blocks of a shared consensus on government, security, and development. The commission will report directly to the President of the United States and be made up of no more than 10 bipartisan experienced members including former members of Congress. The presence of former members of Congress would help engage the Hill in this effort, as congressional support will be essential. A good model for the commission is the 2006 Baker-Hamilton Commission, which came up with 79 recommendations in a matter of months for the Bush administration's way forward in Iraq. There have been successful independent commissions over the last 30 years, but the Baker-Hamilton Commission was one of the most successful and the most recent major foreign policy commission. I realize that the work of many commissions is not always given serious consideration, but that depends on the president, the stature of the commissioners, their objective, the relevancy of the report, and ultimately, the priority that the president gives it. This issue will demand the next president's complete attention. Ladies and gentlemen, the Middle East is not lost. It has a hopeful future. That future must begin with the present. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Secretary Hagel. Uh, we have a number of questions that have uh, been submitted for your consideration. I'll read them through and then you can choose which ones you might wish to respond to and, and which order and how long you might wish why, to. Why don't you do this? Just do one at a time and I'll, I'll respond to all of them. Oh, all right. Here we go. Um, Some may be. How might the United answer. States help the GCC countries? overcome the limited effectiveness of their military coordination and interoperability to date. They made progress, but uh, many say, well, it's uh, limited or insufficient to the need. So how might, if at all, the United States help the GCC countries overcome the limited effectiveness of their military coordination and interoperability? Well, first of all, um we are doing that. 
um, with each of the six GCC countries in the United States. When I was uh, Secretary of Defense, I held two meetings uh, with um, GCC defense ministers. And the focus uh, was uh, on that main point, on how the United States military could be more effective in integrating uh, our resources to assist the GCC countries' militaries. Uh, yes, in, in cooperating with each other, but also how we could all get more value added out of our militaries and out of the resources that we uh, apply uh, individually, but also collectively. Uh, to the efforts that are common, continue to be common uh, in the Middle East. Certainly terrorism uh, is at the top of that, uh, of that threat. Uh, I think the continued strengthening of uh, those relationships and those efforts uh, is absolutely critically important. When I was Secretary of Defense, uh, we put a very high priority on that. I uh, assume uh, the next set of senior defense officials will continue to do that. Uh, I said in my remarks that alliances were critically important and have been the last 70 years in this post-World War II uh, world order. Uh, if it's possible, over the next certainly 20, 25 years, they may be even more important uh, than they've been. And uh, it isn't just with the military, but it's with every, it's, it's with every institution of a nation's power, economic development, uh, social exchanges, students, uh, and certainly military, and intelligence. Intelligence is a huge part of that where I think we've made uh, a great strides, maybe some of the most significant strides in sharing, in sharing intelligence with each other. Um, another one is how can the GCC countries, and perhaps Egypt as well, overcome uh, congressional opposition to deploying high-end American defense assets to those countries, uh, even if satisfactory security arrangements uh, can be made to have such assets monitored by U.S. personnel. And this uh, congressional operation, uh, opposition has uh, mounted and accelerated in recent weeks. All the more reason I wish Buck McKeon was back as chairman of the House Armed Services <laughs> Committee, but um, it's a serious question, uh, and uh, it, it is a and has been uh, a problem, an issue, because um, uh, all that we do as uh, the United States, as a nation, looking at our interests, as well as each country looking at its own interests. How then you integrate those interests, as I noted again in my, my comments, uh, so that we have a common interest in, in working together, and certainly platforms, the sophistication of platforms, uh, aircraft in particular, uh, uh, missiles, uh, missile defense systems, uh, are part of that. and because the United States uh, uh, is the leader of the world in the most sophisticated technology, we have a responsibility to do everything we can to assure that uh, especially those high-end technical assets do not fall in the hands of the wrong people. 
uh, not intentionally maybe, but because they weren't secured well enough. And so it's an issue that um, the United States has to take seriously. Each country that we partner with, GCC countries, I know takes uh, seriously. Um, there's an accommodation that always has to be made uh, in how are you going to secure those weapons? How do you assure that those weapons do not fall in the wrong hands in a very uh, volatile region uh, of the world? Uh, so it's a difficult issue uh, to deal with. But uh, there's no other way to deal with it except deal with it. Mm -hmm. and, and I think we made a lot of progress in the years I was Secretary of Defense. I know we did. And I think we'll continue to make that progress. The uh, uh, the GCC countries in particular, but but all of U.S. allies uh, need the kind of sophisticated equipment and technology and training to be able and be capable uh, of certainly maintaining it, but also using it. And that's a big part of this as well: uh, the training and the schools that uh, I think will continue and must continue to expand. And I, th I think overall over the years we've done a pretty good job uh, uh, with that. All right. Uh, picking up on a phrase of yours to the concern that uh, such weapons not fall into the wrong hands. Uh, this one has to do with such weapons uh, falling on the wrong people, uh, innocent civilians, men, women, and, and children. Um, how might the United States revise its drone policy, given that the killing of Arab civilians has frequently exacerbated rather than alleviated anti-Americanism in the region? It's understood that drones have reduced the number of American casualties. They've not necessarily reduced the number of casualties uh, where uh, the weapons that they guide happened uh, to fall. Uh, we criticize other countries readily for um, uh, inadvertently or advertently uh, bombing hospitals or clinics, uh, and we do the same, and uh, we've dropped bombs on weddings, etc. So how would the United States, if at all, uh, revise its drone policy? Uh, because it is exacerbating rather than alleviating anti-Americanism uh, in the region. Well, um, Ambassador, unfortunately, everything you have just stated is, is true, and um, uh, it is a constant uh, for every senior person who has any responsibility, uh, certainly in the, in the Defense Department, but other agencies of our government have some of those capabilities as well, uh, uh, to uh, not at all costs not ever uh, make mistakes or see mistakes are made that uh, would incur innocent civilians' lives being taken. Uh, I, I start with this uh, premise. Uh, war, to begin with, is a very dirty, indiscriminate business. That's not an excuse, by the way, but that's a reality. Um, Every war in history has been full of, the, of these kinds of, of situations. Uh, and as our weapons have become more sophisticated, you mentioned drones specifically, um, it presents more risk 
and more uncertainty. And I recall every National Security Council meeting I sat in uh, that President Obama presided over, uh, the, the one constant that he always stated was, I do not want one civilian casualty. Always. Now, have we had them? Yes. Uh, you can say, well, it's imperfect, uh, it was an accident, but that's really not good enough uh, for all the reasons uh, we know. It is a constant measurement and effort uh, and calibration to assure as best we can possibly assure that uh, civilians uh, are not caught uh, in the middle of warfare. When you've got an enemy today that we face, like terrorists, who use innocent civilians as shields, and who intentionally put them in buildings and put them in locations where they know the United States policy and other countries' policy, it is not to hit those buildings that there, if, 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 if we have any, any, any inclination, there may be innocent people in those buildings. We won't, we won't attack them, even if we know who else may be inside those buildings. We just won't. Uh, so it's a constant effort to perfect this, uh, assure in every way we can. That means also having uh, our people on the ground which is another issue uh, that uh, is always part of the debate. It should be. Uh, when you say, well, why does America have boots on the ground in Syria and different countries? Um, well, one of the reasons we do as forward observers to, to assure as much as we can in coordinating with our allies in those areas that whatever drone strikes are called in, whatever attacks are called in, uh, the absolute best most immediate, up-to-date intelligence uh, is there, and the coordinates for those attacks are accurate. Um, so there are a lot of pieces to this. It needs to get better. I recognize exactly what you said, that the hatred that this engenders, and, and no one in this room uh, would feel any different. Uh, certainly we in the United States wouldn't. If we had uh, our families innocently bombed and maimed and killed, that sure as hell wouldn't endear us to so-called liberators or people that, would, that are claiming to help us, whether it's a mistake or an accident or not. You know, they kill innocent people. So it's, it's, a, it's a terrible, terrible tragedy that there's no easy answer for, John. You, you have to just keep working it and working it. Uh, and again, it's never easy any warfare. Um, like many of you, I've been through one of those and the atrocities that, that come with it are sickening. Uh, but that's not an excuse. You, you have a responsibility in, in war, and you have to take that responsibility seriously, and we do. We make mistakes, but we've got to do better. Um, this one can be answered by the others who will come after you, but we want your response, if at all possible. How would one assess the tactical and strategic capabilities of American and, and Arab militaries? to combat regional threat, particularly as they pertain to asymmetric warfare. Now we've had bright star exercises in Egypt. These were amongst the largest American, um, not just out of military joint exercises and maneuvers uh, on the planet. 
uh, and we don't have them anymore. But we've had also exercises with Bahrain's uh, Navy, uh, with uh, Iraq's uh, forces such as they are, and with Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. Uh, but the asymmetric aspect of it, uh, terrorism, underwater operations, special operations, you name it. Uh, can you address that, please? Well, again, you defined uh, the, the challenge, I think, pretty well, especially in your last comments. Uh, but, but that's not new to warfare uh, in the history of mankind. Uh, I mean, every generation of warfare becomes more sophisticated and in many ways more asymmetric. And so uh, you deal with it. Uh, it's a new challenge, but every generation deals with new challenges. And it's always a matter of how you respond to them. And I think to give you, at least in my opinion, uh, a bottom line kind of an answer here, it's, it's the continued refinement of integration uh, of our institutions working closer and closer together. The G, for example, GCC mm -hmm. uh, and the United States, meaning our intelligence capabilities, uh, continuing to integrate those uh, as closely as we can so that we're sharing real-time intelligence with each other. Um, th that's really critical to, to a lot of this asymmetric issue. Um, I think law enforcement. Every country is a little different in, in how they do that. Um, National Guard, standing armies, law enforcement. Um, but law enforcement is critical to this uh, as well. Obviously, conventional militaries um, are, are important. And those exercises, those joint exercises, the more we can do joint exercises, the more we become familiar with each other and our processes, our procedures, our command structures, and also personal relationships. I've always believed this, like in politics or anything really, um, political differences are political differences. But if you have personal relationships, it serves as a certain lubricant to make it all kind of work better. Uh, and it's, it's like that in every institution. The better we can know each other and understand each other. We, we all have our interests. No, no country will, will, will do anything nor should it, unless they, they believe that it's in their interest. Every nation responds in its own self-interest. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's very verifiable and reassuring. It's when you don't know how a country is going to respond where it becomes uh, questionable and of great concern. So I, I, I would think, without going too deep into this, those general approaches uh, to deal with asymmetric warfare that, that it will get worse and it's going to get more difficult. Cyber uh, is a good example. And I don't know how much you're going to get into cyber here, but I think cyber is as big a threat to the national security of the United States as any one thing. Uh, without firing a shot, without moving an airplane or a ship, uh, you don't know it's coming. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you don't know for a while or, or maybe long while, where it came from, who is responsible, what kind of response. It can paralyze countries. It can paralyze military assets. It can paralyze power grids. It can, it can paralyze financial districts. It can paralyze regions. Uh, and this is only going to get more difficult to deal with. 
uh, just one last point on this. When I was at the Pentagon, um, I had the good fortune of, after being there my first five days on the job, um, I was informed by the Undersecretary of Defense for Finance that sequestration had just taken effect. And uh, that meant that the Pentagon, as Buck McKeon knows, was going to uh, now have to take another another $50 billion cut that had not been planned for, not been budgeted for. And so, as Chairman McKeon knows, uh, the two budgets that I uh, presented to the Congress on behalf of the administration and the third budget that I prepared, um, I asked for two areas of increase. One was special operations, because I thought that area is going to be needed more and more, if for no other reason, the asymmetric dynamic of warfare, what, what, what was going to be not only with us, but become more sophisticated, and uh, cyber, because I, I saw those two as critically, critically important that we were probably undermanned and understaffed and under-resourced. Uh, all the other components of the Defense Department of that institution are important. Every, every part of that, conventional Navy, conventional Air Force, uh, drones, standing army, Marines, everyone has to work in an integrated uh, way, and each is important with each uh, having a, a specific mission, but also a larger uh, mission um, that directs their specific uh, mission. So I think it's, it's all part of the answer to your question. Okay. Last question, and we have quite a few for those who will come after you. Um, and this is a counterpoint to a point that you made uh, about building blocks with Iran and uh, maybe uh, misunderstood with regard to Russia. But let's just look at Iran. Um, the uh, Cold War deterrence and containment that uh, was successful in uh, Western Europe containing the Warsaw Pact, the, the, the Soviet bloc, the Eastern bloc, Central Eastern Europe, and the Soviet Union, had they uh, been part of NATO, um, many people think, my goodness, NATO couldn't have worked. Uh, there was such an ideological block. There was an assertive stance on the part of uh, the Soviet Union. We will bury you, things like that from Khrushchev. And the more modern-day aspect in terms of the Iranian variant in the Iranian constitution, there is a provision to uh, the duty, constitutional obligation to export Iran's revolution. Well, that means to its neighborhood first and foremost. So um, uh, isn't before that was a bridge too far to incorporate the Warsaw Pact, Central Eastern European, and the Soviet uh, bloc. Uh, many in the region think it would be a, a bridge too far uh, to really incorporate Iran as a building block when its constitution uh, constitutionally obligates its citizens uh, to undermine and overthrow its neighbors. Uh, well, um, the way I would answer that is if, if you believe that history doesn't move, if you believe that everything stays the same, then I suppose that would be a valid argument. But um, just a cursory reading of history, and as a former United States Senator, I mean, we do occasionally read, 
uh, and pay attention. Iran is changing. It, it is shifting. That that's I don't know where it goes, good, bad, I, but but it's changing. The Iranian nuclear agreement, uh, which not everyone supported, and I and I understand all of that. I did support it. And I thought it was far smarter and wiser to get that deal because it was certainly in our interest for a lot of reasons. Was it perfect? No. And the question I used to get on that, and I know the president did, and John Kerry, but how can you trust the Iranians? Inherent in, the, in your question. That's not the point. You don't trust the Iranians. If we, if we did that with the Russians or anybody else, we would never have a peace treaty. We'd never have, we'd have nothing but war because it's easy to say, well, you can't trust them. Let's go to war. So what the hell is the alternative? The alternative just to keep systematically destroying the Middle East and all the ripple effects that's going on. Now, that doesn't mean you give up principles, that you give away anything, but you better sure as hell try to figure this out. And, and, and if you can get a deal that makes some sense, I said in my remarks, common interests. Common, you're not going to figure it all out. You, you, you can't. On the Iranian nuclear deal, uh, there was a lot of criticism because it didn't include missiles. That's true. But if you would have started to try to inject missiles in Hezbollah and, 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 and all the rest in it, uh, you would have gotten no deal. Um, so the alternative there would have been, unless someone has a better one, military. So we go to war with Iran. Oh, that's good. Yeah, well, when that, when that one comes, that landscape's going to be a little different than up than taking out Gaddafi or Saddam Hussein. That will be a little different. Uh, you've always got that option. You've always got that option. Isn't it smarter to try to figure out some things that make some sense and, and, and work it from the inside? And, and again, I don't think the Iranians are going anywhere. Uh, they've got their... Their interest into the country, certainly that I've mentioned, uh, and more. Um, the Russians are, are key to this too. I don't think the Russians are leaving anytime soon. Uh, they've made a big time commitment there. It doesn't mean you agree with the Russians or any aspect of it, but but these are hardcore, realistic decisions that have to be made because again, what is the alternative? Wait them out. One alternative, I just read in many various opinions on this, in papers, think tanks. It's interesting, those who write opinion papers and have all the answers, they have no responsibility, of course. And many of them are so brilliant, they deprive America, they all should be running for president because they have all the answers. Uh, easy to write things and give speeches with no responsibility. But when you've got the responsibility, uh, of hundreds of millions of people and others, and I don't mean just our president, but any any leader, uh, you better find some ways and get, and, and get serious about about where this is all going, because uh, uh, it, it's just now too dangerous. And uh, unless I'm wrong on everything I said, and maybe I am, this is not a, this is not a local issue in the Middle East. This is a this is a worldwide problem. 
a worldwide problem. And as I noted in here, when you've got military powers like Russia and Iran and Turkey, the United States, all with military assets inside this little country called Syria with all the other interests uh, in there, NATO powers, GCC powers, the terrorists. Um, I don't know of a place in the world or a time when it's been more combustible to have something really, really blow up. So uh, I wish I had a better answer to that. It is uncertain, but I would leave you with this. Uh, this building is named after a president by the name of Ronald Reagan. And I recall, and many of you do, uh, on the issue of the Soviets, doing deals with the Soviets. And I don't know if we've ever had a president more anti-communist than Ronald Reagan. Evil empire. But he said something very instructive that I've never forgotten, and I think it's very applicable to today, too, maybe more so, on the trust issue. And you all remember what he said, trust but verify. On those nuclear agreements that we have, the six-party talks, and by the way, that in itself is not insignificant. Six major countries agreeing on something. The verifiable protocols in that are very significant. Every one of those countries that are pretty sophisticated countries, and they, and they have pretty sophisticated nuclear military people uh, that were involved in this, and scientists, uh, they felt, we all felt, that the verifiable protocols were strong enough so that, that the issue of, well, you can't trust the Iranians, no. I mean, you assume they probably will try to cheat, as the Russians have, as the Soviets did. But the protocols, if they're good enough and you're getting enough out of it, and if you can stop the possibility it, for 10 or 15 years, I don't know when I used to get the question, well, what about after 15 years? Well, well, I'm not that smart. I mean, you tell me what the world looks like in 15 years. I know what the world looks like now. I've got a pretty good understanding where I think it's going in the next year or two. I mean, I don't know beyond that, and maybe not even beyond today. But I can't predict 15 years. Are we smarter to kind of get what we can now and, and stop a lot of this now, and then we'll see? Um, different views of that. But um, I... I, I I think that's, uh, that's all I can say about it, because I know there are different views about it, but I, I hope I laid out some different reasons why I think it's smarter to try to reach out to Iran and Russia uh, on this, uh, at least find enough common interest, at least enough to stop the butchery, the slaughter, the killing, the destruction that will continue, because they see it as a proxy war as much as anything else in their interest. And who suffers but the people represented in this room and the people you represent uh, in the countries that you come from. That's who suffers. Thank you. You, you asked the question, though, what were the alternatives and the measure of trust? And the footnote is that uh, of the six countries you mentioned, only one was a neighbor of Iran. Uh, seven neighbors that are neighbors of Iran uh, were not involved in those talks. And uh, they wanted to be, at least six of them did, and asked could they be. And uh, we, uh, on their behalf, asked the Iranians, uh, could they at least audit or be listener participants?
because you're their neighbor and they consider you, in most cases, their greatest threat. And the Iranians said no, and our response in effect was, all right. Uh, now, the analogy would be that Russia or China were entering into strategic talks with uh, Canada or Mexico, and the United States was excluded. Uh, we would have gone berserk uh, was that the situation. So that was an alternative not taken, and that had a lot to do with trust. Uh, just being a cerebral massage here in terms of a uh, uh, footnote. Well, <laughs> that's more than a footnote, John. That's a, uh, but, but you're a very humble man, and I always appreciate that about your, your humility. But uh, uh, first of all, I wasn't involved in the last year of that, so I can't. I can't respond directly to uh, the, the process, uh, but I do know that I was involved enough up until that last year that um, there was conversation with the six GC countries. And um, beyond the t after I left, and I, I, I can't uh, respond. Um, and I certainly c could not and never would try to respond or d identify or define the security interests of another nation. And I, I've never pretended to do that. I'm not, not near smart enough to do that. I think one of the things the U.S. has made some mistakes on over the years is, is we've done that. And it's gotten us in trouble every time uh, we, we do that. But I can tell you this much in uh, response to your footnote. Um, the interest of our allies in the Middle East, in particular the GCC countries, uh, was not insignificant or was not uh, on the outside. It was very clearly there for obvious reasons, for, for obvious reasons. I get they are in the neighborhood. They are there. I get that. Uh, uh, we're, we're not. Um, but again, going into into a deeper specific answer, I just don't have the, the ability to do that because I don't know the specifics other than what I've just already said. What I do know on that they were they were asked and talked about it, and I, and I know where they all are on it. I know where their position on it. I know their position today on it. Um, uh, I, uh, I understand that. Uh, but uh, again, that decision that was made by six countries uh, was not void of the interest of the entire uh, Middle East. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Uh, thank, thank you, Secretary Hagel. Thank you, sir.